0: This episode is brought to you by WorldPay from FIS. Did you know that omnichannel shoppers spend up to three times more than single channel shoppers? With WorldPay's omnichannel platform, you can turn single transactions into smarter, connected customer experiences. So while you set the style trend, we can help maximize your omnichannel payment spend. Let's reinvent smarter. Visit FISglobal.com.
1: I feel like we have to really reassess and really admit that there is something irrelevant about what we bring to the table right now. Fashion shows don't have to be relevant right now. There's so many other things that are more
2: important. really, the way that you have configured it does attract a certain kind of person. You can't define it, but nevertheless, you have to have a, a certain appetite for life to respond to what you've been doing.
1: This is like alternative couture because if you want a huge extravagant tool ball gown, you know where you can go to find that. For me at Scaparelli, we're not going to do that.
3: Hi this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF Podcast. On a recent episode of BOF Live, our editor at large Tim Blank sat down with Daniel Roseberry now the artistic director of Scaparelli, Tim tracks the journey that Daniel has taken from a behind-the-scenes designer at Tom Brown to the man who takes a bow at the end of Scaparelli's fashion shows. Tim and Daniel also talk about the role of fashion in the era of COVID-19 and how fashion can be relevant in this particular time. Here's Daniel Roseberry, Inside Fashion. We
2: are talking to Daniel Roseberry, who for one year and three months has been the designer at Scaparelli in Paris, which actually makes him one of the new standard bearers of haute couture. And this seems like a very interesting moment to be talking about haute couture with Daniel, apart from the fact that he has many interesting opinions about it. Uh, this, this seems to me a moment when uh, people are reassessing fashion, uh, people, are, people are looking at, uh, people are searching for new ways to um, make fashion relevant and give it meaning, um, make it sustainable. Uh, and these and other issues to a very large degree are addressed by haute couture in, in quite unexpected ways. So, um, Daniel, welcome. Thank you and uh, i would like to ask you right off the bat what did haute couture mean to you in your e- evolution as a designer
1: what did it yes. mean to me
0: before, you actually before became this whole a thing
2: couturier?
1: um i think it it meant to me probably what it means to everybody who studies or loves fashion it was really You know, kind of the pinnacle of fantasy. I always, you know, I have visions of Lacroix, Saint Laurent, that kind of, even like Carl from the 90s, like that was when I really started to notice fashion. And it was through couture that I became obsessed with fashion. But it was really, I would say, probably this idea of fantasy, that this unreal um, level of luxury and beauty that was almost like beyond. A human level, in a way, that was what it meant to me.
2: And you were—you've been working in fashion for how many years altogether? This
1: will—this will be my um, uh, eleventh, twelfth year in fashion.
2: Yeah. So when did couture um, assert itself as a sort of, you know, fantasy fighter for you? Say it again, sorry. When the, when the couture assert itself as this kind of fantasy fodder for you, when did you, you were working for Tom Brown for all that time. Um, yeah. You were working on very, very rigorous ready-to-wear that really shifted the boundaries of ready-to-wear. Right, right. Completely. So,
0: right.
1: Um, I mean, Tom... My experience at Tom was so, I mean, and you know this better than most people, like so what he was doing in New York um, was groundbreaking and really was not even some of the shows. And that was the thing I loved about Tom is some shows were really ready to wear and some shows were really not ready to wear at all. And, you know, I think that it, it was approaching as close to a couture process as you could get as far as the rigor um, I remember one season that we did, you know, where he came to me, it was the first women's show in Paris. And he had had an idea and he came to me and he said, you know, I want to do the entire show made out of tulle, the entire collection. And that was the brief that we worked inside of and that he guided us through. And But it was really, you know, it was really beyond ready to wear. And I think that there's nowhere else in New York I could have worked that could have prepared me for the kind of hours that go into a garment, the kind of, and the kind of rigor that, that we had at um, Tom Brown for sure. So Tom Brown was the first time, obviously that, you know, it's my only other job before Schiaparelli in fashion. So that was my first foray into this kind of um, approach, but really it was, you know, a teenager, when the the style channel came to town and watching, you know, fashion file and video fashion and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was just transformed as a, like a teenager, 13, 14 year old in Dallas. So,
2: yeah. Dallas was a pretty dressy city, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of couture clients said, you, you, you must, when you were out and about, you must've seen some pretty, I mean, I know, what is it, the hair?
1: Yeah, the huge Texas hair, the
2: like High to heaven or something, I don't know, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, like putting a hole in the ozone layer kind of hair.
2: Um, no, it was, I mean, that was not
1: my Dallas. I came from a very, you know, we lived outside of Dallas in the suburbs. My dad was a priest and we were, you know, really not, a glitzy family we're a very artsy family but not a very glitzy family but because my dad was a priest i had a a tuition basically to a sort of fancy school in dallas and so i would go from my weekly life at home in plano which is exactly looks how it sounds to going and staying in highland park at my friends houses and just completely um you know, that was really like what changed me, I think, was seeing the way that those, the way the homes were decorated, the way that the the women were dressing and um, Highland Park Village, you know, these really like, as you said, like it's kind of like LA, Dallas has like a little bit of that LA glam, even back then and even more now, I think. So it was fascinating. I got both sides of the story kind of.
2: So so as a sort of psychological, um... As a bit of a psychological back- backdrop, fashion would have seen, seemed like a real escape for you then.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it always was something that I was interested in that no one else around me knew anything about other than consuming. But, you know, I never, ever remember until I went to FIT, I never remember having a conversation with anyone in my orbit that um, really was interested in fashion was always something that was kind of my left of center kind of attraction. And um, I mean, for a lot of reasons, the church being one of them, fashion became like this kind of, um, you know, as you said, like an escape for me. And uh, I ran all the way here, I guess. I mean, it was really that, you know, it was a really dramatic, running away not a rebellion necessarily but a real exodus when i did
2: leave i i have to say that you know from plano texas we're talking to you today in the the place Vendôme in paris yeah yeah uh, this this sort of beating heart of haute couture and you're actually in scaparelli's original studio are not you
1: i'm actually at the moment i'm in the attic of the place vendome i'm on the fifth floor and yes like when the company was restarted and our owner restarted everything. He bought back the original salons and the whole space. So it is um, surreal to say the least
2: beyond. It's an interesting point, I think. Fashion was by force a sort of private pleasure for you. You said you didn't have anyone else to talk to about it. And then couture has always struck me that, that its strength, is that it is a mm-hmm. private pleasure as well, and um, that that I mentioned at the beginning of you know, the, the things that equip couture for this particular time. The, the notion of preciousness is very important to couture. It's not disposable clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it w- which makes it a sort of sustainable thing. But also the private the private pleasure of mm-hmm. of, of couture. You know, there's this debate, we've been talking about it a lot over the last six months, um, whether fashion will become, will return, will will evolve out of this into something that's more discreet, or whether extravagance will still. And and, and fashion's a funny, and couture's a funny paradox, because it's like discreet extravagance in a way. Right,
1: right, completely, completely. And that's, I think, the nature of the client, too. I mean... I think the real couture client is someone who is more discreet than we would think, or than I definitely thought. Um, but the nature of what they're investing in is, an, it's like an essential extravagance for them, you know? And I find that really um, fascinating, it's just rare today, to see, some, to see somebody investing in an extravagance, which is an extravagance for them you know and i think that that's you're always going to have clients to you know or influencers or people who are outward facing you know embodiments of the brand in a way but the real um backbone of our couture business are really these women who shall remain nameless who are very very discreet and it's really a personal pleasure for them or passion for them and it's just fascinating really and it's something you really don't get as much in ready to wear so it it feels like this bizarre and amazing microcosm to be you know finally a part of in some weird way
2: so that they i wonder if the those uh that clientele is a sort of early adopters in one way in, in that they're they're quite social media averse aren't they um you know, I was talking to Michael Halpin, who's a, a wonderful, I guess, demi couturier in London, and he said once his, once his dresses leave his studio, he never sees them again.
0: Right, totally. I mean,
1: that's I think one of the one of the biggest um, joys that you can have as a designer is to know that someone is really wearing and living in and loving your your pieces. And also the pieces that you create with the atelier, because it's different than I mean, I think that the kin the kindredness that I feel with the members of the atelier here, it's very different for me than it felt in ready in Ready to Wear. Where I mean, obviously it's not made at a factory, you know, over in Italy or overseas or whatever. I mean, you know by name every single person who's worked on a piece and Many times it's one or two people. So there's a real connection between, I mean, you can't look at a garment and be like, in a way it's like, that's not mine at all. That's like a collective effort in a way that I had not experienced before. Um, But yes, it is um, a huge uh, honor and and it's surreal to see things, to know things are out there and not be seeing them.
2: But but the things that you've been doing, some of the things you've been doing, have been so extraordinary and so mm-hmm. um, in the in that in that what fifteen months since you've been at Scaparelli, yeah, complex and elaborate. I mean, sometimes quite cerebral in mm-hmm. in, in the elaboration, but but nevertheless, real showpieces yeah and, and and it's it is i just find it so bizarre that they go somewhere and right. they have a life somewhere right but what is that life
1: well now i feel like when we start working on the collection we think about this one like you know everyone's always like who is the scaparelli woman who's your client for me i've never and maybe this is my tom run upbringing but i've never really like hung my hat on one specific person to be like an archetype for whoever this whoever i'm designing for but we do model the design process after you know how i kind of perceive the personality and the life of elza herself because my whole thing is like what would she be designing today if she was alive you know i don't it it is in a way it's um a performative act you know designing for somebody as iconic as her Um, And what I love about her is that she was this kind of rigorous professional during the day. And she wore these, you know, straight shoulder, you know, skirt suits. And and there was always some surreal twisted jewelry or some subversion of some kind. But then at night, she would throw these kind of insane parties, like costume parties and dress up like things. And there were these real, you know, I mean... It was a, a, a reality versus a surreality, surreality, you know? And I think that when we're d- approaching the collection, we think about it in the same way. There are pieces that now we can look at and say, that's for this client, that's for this client. We know exactly who will go for those real world pieces. And then there are other pieces like last, I think it was last night or two days ago, Regina King wore one of the scaparelli gowns to the Emmys from the last Couture show. And for me, like, when a gown when a like that comes out, I'm like, I know it's going to have a home somewhere. It's just a countdown until it finds the right home. And, you know, so there is, like, I, it's rare to sell one of the more insane pieces unless it's a collector's item um, to, to one of the real, real clients. You know, I think she wants something much more real, much more forever, much more functional.
2: So Do, do, you, mean, do you mean that Regina King was wearing a Scaparelli outfit with the Breonna Taylor T-shirt. The, the
1: pink suit that she wore with the Breonna Taylor T-shirt was a scap, ready to wear. But then there was this, there was a lot a virtual red carpet and she wore that sapphire blue gown with all of the stones all over it um, for the virtual red carpet. So we had a, a date night with Regina the, the other night. Oh, that,
2: that, 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 that completely contradicts what I just said about when the dress leaves leaving the studio, you never yeah. see it again. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting... That, that's a sort of, she's a, I mean, apart from the fact that she is probably my favorite actress at the moment, and Watchmen was my favorite TV show. Beyond. Uh, beyond, it's my favorite TV show. Yeah. Uh, Scaparelli. the way that you have configured it, does attract, I imagine, a certain kind of person. Whether You, you can't say whether it's you know, you can't define it. But nevertheless, there is. there is yeah. this, You have to have a, a certain appetite for life to respond to what you've been doing, I think.
1: I, the word I always think about is just something a little alternative. Because this is like alternative couture. Because if you want a huge, you know, extravagant tulle ball gown, you know where you can go to find that. And I I think that for me at Scaparelli, we're not gonna do that. We are not, I mean, there are, there's always a place for that kind of, you know, major shut the red carpet down moment, for sure. It's one of my favorite things to do. Have you ever done that? um, Not at Scaparelli, but I feel like, you know, no, at Scaparilli, yeah, we did, we did like the Beyonce gown, which shut down, you know, like, it's always something that, it's one of the best parts of the job, is that like conceiving and, and also designing for this really inspiring people. Um, but um, I forgot where I was going with that. What was the question? Go it on. was, um, anyways, that's no, one good. of my favorite, yeah.
2: Yeah. There's always that place for the, chapter, chapter red carpet down moment and then just before that. I mean, it was
1: really like the quieter moments I think are what are more, in a way, almost even more interesting. They're more nuanced and like you said, they're more relational. And I think that that's something that's really been coming to the forefront in the midst of everything that's been happening is just the relational aspect of couture becoming more and more important. and More, I mean, it will be, it was the heartbeat of couture um, before this. And I think it will be even more that a lot of these people who are buying couture, their lives have been less affected probably than most people's lives and their love of fashion and that kind of essential extravagance that we were talking about, isn't going away, you know? So I think that it's, it's through those personal connections that we can continue to, evolve, I think, in, in the realm of couture specifically.
2: So what has been happening over the last six months? I mean, there was a, during the, the digital couture uh, days in Paris, yeah. you, you made a film about drawing the new collection. Yeah. Yeah. And I, another action, yeah. I, I'll ask you about that because it's it's interesting how you have inserted yourself into the story, like like when you did the show in Par- a show in Paris, you sat on the runway drawing drawing the collection as the models as a the 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 outfits walked walked all around you. Yeah, and I I thought it, it was you introduced that was your first big show that was you introducing yourself to the fashion world. Yeah, but at the same time it was it was there's not that sense of you know, I'm the backroom boy.
1: No. You no. No. And I think that a lot of it comes from the fact that being from Plano, Texas, being an American, being such an outsider. I think that there's something that that can resonate with people about seeing like the whole concept behind that show was, and we kind of revisited it with the film over quarantine, was The dichotomy between the life that I was living, you know, I was sleeping on the floor at my friend's apartment, designing a couture collection in Chinatown without really knowing, without having the job. It was a proposal. And then, you know, a month later, I was in the Place Vendôme getting the job. And I found that I remember walking to work. It was December, or walking to the studio. I was unemployed. I'd left Tom Brown. And I didn't have anything to do and I was literally putzing around Chinatown and then I got an ask to make this proposal for for SCAP. And I just remember what I was listening to me as I was walking to the the studio with nothing to do. And I said like, you know, this is so amazing that if I got this job, that people would, the clothes that people would see were conceived in this dirty, freezing cold shithole Chinatown studio. And to me, if I had seen something like that when I was 16 and it had been given permission to dream on this level, like that is what would, I would have, it could have changed my life earlier, you know? And I think that that's part of why I just like find that so compelling in a weird way. And I wanted people to know this is not... I'm not a trained couturier. I'm not, uh, you know, I wasn't brought up in the French houses, but it doesn't mean I don't have something interesting to say and don't have something to contribute to this world of couture. So that was kind of why. And then when I was working on Collection Imaginaire, it it was a similar thing. I was in lockdown in New York. You know, everything was happening. It was right in the middle of the protests and everything that were happening, Black Lives Matter, everything. And um, it was this incredible moment in the city and it was right when the couture shows would have been. And it was just such a stark contrast that I wanted to highlight that and say like, you know, even through all of this, even with so much has been taken away from us, I could still go to the park, Washington Square Park, and sketch out, you know, a 35 look collection. and, And, that that could you know somehow be enough in that moment you know, and um, that's kind of it felt like a it felt like a weird deja vu, um, in some
2: twisted way. But in drawing that collection, y- you actually did draw a collection. It wasn't just wishful thinking. You were actually making designing outfits. What what happened to them all? What happens to them all? The co- collection. What Imaginaire you called it. Yeah. So it was,
1: yeah, it was a collection that at the moment only could exist to my imagination. And what we've done is we've we've actually received requests from um celebrity stylists and from a few clients that they would be interested in going through the process of having those pieces created for them for an event or just for whatever. So the ideas that we would actually bring to fruition, and we're working on um, I actually just launched the first. Pieces yesterday. Um, And this is in tandem basically with the new collection that we're launching for the end of January. So, you know, we're not going to produce the entire thing. And I, it also like the film itself was the moment, you know, it it didn't exist in order to delay, you know, giving us a moment later. but I think that we'll have some really great, you know, red carpet, whenever the red carpets happen again, we can have some great red carpet moments off that collection
2: too, so. Whenever the red carpet happens again.
1: Yeah. A real, I mean, the, the digital ones, you know, are great in the meantime, but
2: it's not the same. Um, what, what, I mean, another interesting thing about couture is it kind of exists outside the normal fashion calendar. I, I know it's shown, Twice a year during clearly defined days, but I mean, it's it's much more of a of a sort of fluid proposition. Made to yeah. Offer. Um, yeah, it's customers are getting in touch with you all the time. Um, yeah, it's sort of evolve a collection evolves beyond the point totally. you actually offered it to the world. Totally. So those people who you mentioned not having suffered particularly and god knows every day you pick up a newspaper and i don't know why they think it's a good idea to balance all the the tales of hardship with the the stories of these people who just made eight billion dollars (laughs) yesterday right it seems to encourage a sort of revolutionary strand of thinking um Hmm. but they so those women haven't been coming to you and, and saying could you you know i really need a not red carpet either. I need this. You, you mentioned. No, the-
1: yeah, I think like you know, it. It's not to say that like things. We're still proceeding with you know producing the the orders that we had from the last collection. Where we're still like you know steaming. I think that the house itself shut down, of course, like for some time. In Paris, and we're really just getting started again. So, as you said, it's a completely it's a year round global. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things about it. It's like, you can always, we're always at the ready to take care of whoever we need. And that part is really starting up again. And it's going to be really interesting to see how the tastes of the clients have changed, you know, because even if, even no matter what has happened to anyone financially, everyone is from a lifestyle point in a different place. So I think that we'd be looking at I, when we do and you know when we do take orders they're going to be different kinds of orders than they were before. So you know whether that's more comfortable pieces or more cozy pieces or pieces that feel less event oriented and just life oriented, you know. Um that's something that I've been thinking about a lot for for the next collection. And I think I mean obviously all of us have. So um but yeah, we're just really getting started back up here again.
2: I think, in the spirit of Scaparelli, your, your clothes are extreme, some of the clothes you design are extremely eccentric, and yeah. I would imagine that that has a sort of intellectual appeal. Um, yeah, you know that that, yeah. that Scaparelli's clothes have a have a have had a life and history quite outside. Um the fact that they were fashion garments. They they became right. symbolic of the art, the art of the time, you know, that they were completely like a Picasso or a Cocteau or something.
1: Right. Right. And I think that you know, that's the that's her legacy, which is, I mean, if anyone if I could do that today, or if anyone can do that in fashion today, like I am, I'm ready, you know. But chasing that dragon to create museum pieces. I mean, I always think about things going to museum, but trying to replicate what she did, which seemed to be also so effortless and such a product of the time and place in which she lived would be, I think, a very arrogant disaster for me to do. So I'm just like, you know, I think that her legacy is so pure, it's so untouched. You know, we when she shuttered the house it didn't have a carl to bring it forward over decades. You know, it really stayed you know, shuttered. And I think that there I'm I'm very much trying to respect and honor and embody her ethos, but I think trying to trying to replicate it um in any way is is trouble
2: why do you say why do you say you think about museums you you'd like the idea of your clothes ending up in a museum do you
1: of course i mean i think if we're not if we're not chasing that level you know i think that it's uh because we can do that here we can do museum ready pieces from a quality perspective and and hopefully from an intellectual perspective as well. That's definitely something I want to work up to. This is my third season here. And you know, I've been thinking about that a lot too. And Tim, like, I think I speak for a lot of designers when I say that like, the, the fuse, the amount of time that you're given as a designer starting at a house is so brief these days. I think you get probably two maybe three seasons before people start having the conversation and i have these conversations too is it working is it not working like we're ready to move on you know and i love reading old reviews i love reading like it, i dive into those like old guest care balenciaga reviews or old i was recently looking at the um ricardo tishi at Givenchy review there was a real evolution there you know and that the designers were given a chance to not only learn about what it means to work at a new company, a new country, a new atelier, everything, but also learn about your own design process and how you approach, um, how you like how you want to approach what you want to say. And I think that that's something that you know I worked at with Tom for ten years, and I thought I would understand what it would feel like to go from being somebody's right hand to being the person who has to step out at the end of the show and wave, you know, and say, thank you. And, but I had no idea. Really, I had no idea. And I like- What do you I mean had, by that? I had been, you know, cause we, at Tom, we would always be on the backside and I would always watch it. You know, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but it's, I, it's really my story. Like I would watch him go out and take the bow and then come back and i would always you know i was so proud of him i was so proud to be there but i would always also wonder like when's it my turn and i think that i i thought i knew what it would feel like i thought i knew what the pressure would feel like or i thought i would knew i thought i would know like what it was like to maintain a vision throughout the entire creative process you know when there's so many opinions and when there's so many moving parts and when there's so many personality involved and I think that is the challenge the challenge is not really having something to say it's maintaining that line of thought through the months of the creative process and it's something I'm getting better at you know and as you said like my first show was imperfect but brave which is like honestly an amazing compliment for me but I want I want it to become more perfect I think it's something I'm working
2: it's, it's interesting you mentioned Riccardo at Givenchy, the evolution of Riccardo at Givenchy, because by the time he left Givenchy, if you said the word Givenchy to people, they would think of what Riccardo Tisci had, how Riccardo Tisci had remade the house. Now, do you think at, at Scaparelli that there is, and, I, and, and you see for Givenchy, there's always Audrey Epburn, you know, was right. this right. image and so there's this benchmark that everybody gets judged against and then he made that house into Riccardo Tisci's house
0: right. Do you,
2: would you enjoy the prospect of, of Scaparelli becoming of your personality being so eventually infused into the house of Scaparelli that people couldn't could only think about it in in the terms of your of your aesthetic, your creativity. I know you say that, you're, that you are very, very conscious of what she achieved in the work you're doing for the house. But as you look at it now, do you think, ah, that's a roseberry?
1: I would hope that what I would do here, what I do do here, would be that strong and that intense, that people could look at a gown and be like, oh, that's Daniel at Scap. And and I don't think that it has to, that that has to take away from her and her legacy at all. You know, Carl's legacy really doesn't compete with Coco's. It's really like side by side, and um, I do think that we're living in that time where people really crave to feel the person behind the creation. Mm-hmm. I think that the stronger you can make the personality, that that through line between who I am and what I want to say and what we're putting out there, that has to be completely synced up. And I think with all the, the people, like Phoebe, you know, like you really felt, I mean, there wasn't like someone like competing with her at Celine as far as like a legacy goes, like the founders, you know, it wasn't the same thing. But I think you look at the people who, it, who are really clicking with their audience and it's the people who are really, um, expressing like themselves and their work, and it is a personality thing, like you have to be able to go there, I think
2: and I am charisma plus now mm. you you're you, talking about museums and 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 this about the coming out of this situation and how one thing that you can see is the importance of the relationship that the that people feel a relationship with the house through the designer. if I said to you. That you know that 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 stupid million dollar question that is being asked literally every single year I've been working in fashion, uh, is couture dying or, or or what is the future of couture? And I know you have something to say about an industry which seems so bent on on painting the future quite black for itself in a way. You know, you said nobody else asks what is the future of what they do like the way fashion says what's the future of this
1: i i think that that this moment has really revealed to all of us and i i know you feel the same way on some level like we you know any thinking person in fashion knows this that this this moment this global meltdown everything has revealed to fashioners our own you know irrelevance on such a deep deep level and i think that it's not to say that self-expression is irrelevant or that the love of fashion is irrelevant or that the power of fantasy and imagine like that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about the, the the bones of the industry in which we like it is built on for me like very um flawed ideas of how to yeah, I mean, it's really like to brainwash people into thinking that. The, I mean, I like have to like control myself because I could go really dark about it, and I don't want to do that. But I do think that fashion has to get real with itself right now. I know when this started, the the pandemic started, that everyone was asking, you know, is this when fashion's really going to change? You know, is this when things could really shift? Is this when our, you know. We could attempt to have some sort of moral high ground here, because we're one of the most wasteful industries. We're, you know, one of the most materialistic. We're one of the most, you know, exclusive, exclusionary. You know, all those things. And I just, um, I feel like we have to really reassess and really admit that um, there is something irrelevant about what we bring to the table right now. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be relevant right now. Fashion shows don't have to be relevant right now. There's so many other things that are more important. And I wish that fashion people could allow themselves to sit with that that discomfort. And I think you're right. Like, you know, people ask, what is the future of couture? What is the future of this? What is the future? Like, it is so... fashion is so obsessed with predicting itself, you know, and I think it's because we deep down know how like sort of not essential we are in some ways, you know, and I think that there's an insecurity there. Um, So, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about it. I think a lot, everyone in a creative role here in in the industry has, and um, it's, I'm not... Saying I have out all the answers, but it's definitely something that um, I just hope we can allow ourselves to be uncomfortable and to listen to what what the answers could be. But but
2: if when you're working at the level of couture, though, yeah, you you're obviously liberated from you know a lot of the concerns that um, that that dog other designers. You know, you you've talked about designers. Like Galliano and McQueen, who were just completely overloaded with responsibility and you know at some point creativity and and self care and all sorts of things suffer um, in, in your situation, do you feel you're talking about making clothes for women who don't have to worry about you know being the furlough running out on their on their job or anything is it kind of liberating to be in a situation like that for a creative person that that obviously you have your sense of social responsibility Mm -hmm. but at the same time you are making clothes that exist in a gorgeous bubble I guess
1: yeah I mean it is it's a it's a very you know we don't We don't really. We're not really wasteful here. Everything is made in house. It's really. um, We don't have to engage with the underbelly of the
0: industry.
1: No, and um, so yeah, it is. It does feel like a luxury, a luxury of conscience or something, maybe. But um, I still, you know, feel connected to the larger family in which we all are members in a way. And it's, um, and we are starting to make ready wear, ready to wear too. Like we are, pers- we are doing that. We just did our second ready to wear collection last year and we're about to release our third one next month. So, you know, we are, we are not just a couture, a couture house here, but it's true. It is true. But, you know, that could change also really, I mean, the industry itself is not really changing. And at Tom Brown, when I started there were you know, 12 employees, and when I left, there were like over a hundred, you know, those things can happen so fast. And I think that the industry just isn't really in a place to support that healthy growth sometimes. So.
2: You made a rather, you made a rather, um, a, a really great analogy, I think, between the fashion industry and the film industry. And yeah. the film industry came to be dominated by Titans. Right. As the fashion industry has come to be dominated by Titans. So you have Louis, right. B, you had Louis B. Mayer in the film industry, you have Louis Vuitton in the fashion industry. And then at some point, there was this kind of conceptual shift. And independence suddenly had this power that they never had before. And you had the 70s in, fa- in film, which were just like this golden age in American movie making, of independent directors coming through and um, a new wave. Um, I suppose in fashion we have had that in the '90s. There was a sort of, I think, the '90s in fashion were a bit like the '70s in film. There was that sort of explosion of creativity on so many different levels. But, but with that analogy, how how do you see? You know, we've seen what happened to the film industry. We've seen how giantism is kind of, you know, it's just not working. The tenant, which was going to save the movie business, hasn't saved the movie business. If you if you tip that analogy into the fashion world, what do you see? What do you do? You, do you think that this is going to be ultimately this is going to be a good thing for independent designers? That you consider yourself an independent designer in a way. I do think
1: that, you know, we've been talking a lot about having sort of like a startup mentality here, because we are, even if it is a storied house, it is a really small um I mean, not really small, but a really, you know, kind of more precious kind of ever than a lot of those huge like Bruckheimer level level of houses, you know, and that's what I think that when you look at the the big guys and the way that the quantity of pieces that they're producing per item and they, it's just there's no way to, for me, to make that many of something, maintain a certain level of quality desirability and the love the definition of luxury and um you know i think that now like i always think about like you know couture is probably the closest thing to that kind of prehistoric way of getting dressed where so like one person would make one garment for another person you know and you look at the kind of um price tags that you have to engage with in order to get that level of you know um you know care and service and and everything and quality and i just you know i i do think that as these houses become huge that there will be and i think you already feel this and it's it's definitely not fully evolved or or fully thought out yet but i do think that there there will be a moment again for um Smaller houses to produce things that feel more personal, mm. more precious, mm. and um, that that will become meaningful again and trendy again because it has to be, you know, it has to be something that feels trendy too in some sick way in order for people to get back on board. But um, yeah, I mean, I also, everything put in the context of social media, I mean, everything we knew about the way history was cycling through doesn't really matter anymore it seems so it could be an all of the above answer as well i don't know but i do think to your question i do think that this will be a moment for smaller houses for
2: sure and and the designer in the designers in those smaller houses will become more important because as you mentioned before there's going to be this personal relationship between the designer and the customer i mean it's interesting what I've, I've heard a few things coming out of China that in, you know, this first tier, second tier, third tier business and the, the huge cities there. But, but advanced Chinese customers, the, the people who are, who are bringing fashion back in China are looking for basically names that no one's heard of.
1: Exactly. Totally. Totally.
2: Do you remember, like,
1: I don't know, when Alessandro started at Gucci? it was right when Demna started up Balenciaga. And before that season, there was this weird no man's land of nothing happening in fashion. And everyone was saying, what is gonna happen? What's the next thing? No, it it was like a a sequence of very boring fashion weeks. I remember this, vivid. this was like probably what, like eight years ago or something like that. And then Demna came out at Gucci and it was like, changed the game, something new came out, then Valencia and the two of them kind of like introduces new resurgence of activity. And it feels a little, to me, I feel like we're back into like a little bit of a barren wasteland as far as we don't know what the answers are to these things, we can't really even anticipate it. It's really gonna come down to talent, you know, and new talent working today and and coming and showing the way for something new and different but fashion is so obsessed with analyzing itself for whatever reason, I don't know if you know the answer, but- I um,
2: analysis.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, but it's probably because we're full of Virgos too, this industry is yeah, chock full of them. Full of Virgos. Happy birthday. Thank yeah. you, you too. <laughs> so anyways, that's, you know, I don't, I do, I definitely do think so and I think that we're Hopefully, right at the beginning of
2: that next wave, for sure. And and do you feel yourself as part of that as of that next wave? Uh, you you you've been received, um, you know, as a, as a sort of unknown quantity in a way. People are fascinated. I think that in in fashion for the last while, when there's been movement within houses, generally it's been a sort of slightly circular mm-hmm. motion. And then Daniel Roseby comes along and and people were who mm-hmm. at. Totally, probably,
0: you
1: know? totally.
2: Has that been good for you?
1: I've really enjoyed um, getting to meet and know people here and really just be, just try and be myself. And I have felt really graciously welcomed, to be honest, by, the French press specifically, and um, by the U.S. press, and it's just great. And I have felt um, embraced and and kind of like people are rooting for me in some way, in some you know, and it's and so even in some small way, like it, But for me, like it's definitely been something that I haven't felt like people have been against me for the most part, and um, that's been really nice. Really.
0: But you
2: think the era of mystery was useful that, um, you know, people look at you and they, you know, people look at you and they think there's a man with a tale to tell, like an ancient mariner or something.
1: Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I think there was a curiosity at the beginning too. And maybe there still is, I don't know. But I definitely still feel that I am um, just finding my groove, you know? And um, the first collection was orgasmic, as you said, and the second collection felt more focused and like a a step in a more um, kind of, just in a more focused, more sure-footed direction. And then, you know, as everything's been happening, I've spent a lot of time thinking about What's been working? What hasn't been working? It's such an amazing time to pause and reflect, and I'm so excited and you know horny for the next show because it's got to be. I just I hope it's January. We don't know, but I live for the I live for those shows, and I think that um, just a chance to be more focused is what I've been thinking about the most.
2: Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Um, praying for January and really looking forward to whatever comes next. But um, I think, getting back to me harping on mystery, this, there's a mystery in the clothes as well. And I, and I find that really, you know, you, you think about those clothes. So if that's your thumbprint, then keep up. Thank the you. Video.
1: Thanks, Tim. Appreciate you always.
3: If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.